0: You are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress.
1: For the last number of years in the summer, as we've started back to Growth University, we've taken several weeks to reflect on biblical characters in Scripture. How many have a favorite Bible character? You have somebody, if I were to ask you, you've got a character. You've got a character in Scripture you identify with. I know Nathan Barnum's favorite script character is Judas, uh, but uh, <laughs> beside that... Um, I know there are a lot of favorite characters, and you kind of read into those, and you look at those, and you make application uh, to those, but the character studies, and what I love about looking at characters in Scripture is you appreciate the richness. You appreciate the diversity of the people who make up the Bible. That gives us all hope today, that there are a lot of different people In Scripture, and it's important for us to understand it in those human terms. Uh, I think studying Scripture is like looking in a mirror many times. It causes us to reflect on our own strengths and our own weaknesses, as well as gives us grace for other people who are around us. How many have? ever had to give grace to somebody and you just used a Bible character. If the Lord could love them, then I guess I can love them in my life. No, it's, it's amazing and it's important to look at Scripture and characters in Scripture. Um, and tonight I want to just talk about a character in Scripture who I would suggest has a tinge of competitiveness, and how many would identify yourself as being competitive? You would say, "Okay, we've got we've got people here." Andrew, you didn't raise your hand, but that's okay. <laughs> I understand. Uh, I got to be. We had a great time, and I got to be a part of the Band of Brothers event, which is always awesome. And um, the euchre game that we played on Friday night got somewhat intense. Um, it was somewhat competitive, and uh, it was awesome. Loved every every minute of it. Uh, but ha- I'm sure there are those of you, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but those of you who have, who've lost your mind playing sports or a game at some point because of how competitive you are. Greg Meadows raises his hand. Um, anybody ever been driving and the competitiveness comes over you? Somebody passes you on the high, on the highway. (laughs) Oh man, you, you didn't have to do that. But some people are a little bit wired for competitiveness. And I've told this story before, but a friend of mine pastors Calvary Tabernacle in, Indianapolis, Josh Carson, we spent a lot of time together uh, in youth ministry out at Ohio Apostolic Campgrounds and at Buckeye Lake and while we were youth pastors. And one time Josh and I were arguing about whether or not he was competitive, which I know he's very competitive, but we were arguing about this and which is what friends do. And he said, I'm not competitive. I just want to win this argument. <laughs> and tonight we're, we're going to look at a character in Scripture who one could say is somewhat competitive. He was also one of the disciples that was closest to Jesus. And I think we would all love to be identified as that, as the disciple that's closest to Jesus. This person was in Jesus' inner circle. We know that the crowds would follow Jesus wherever he went. We know that Jesus had family that even was with him at times and interrupted some of the things that he was doing. We know that he chose 12 disciples to follow him and to learn from him. But Jesus had three who were his closest confidants. These three experienced Jesus in a way that the other 12 did not experience Jesus. And our focus tonight is on Jesus' disciple named John. And when you say John as it relates to the Bible, you have to clarify because of the common name of John found in the Bible. There are five Johns in Scripture. There's John, the father of Simon Peter. There is John Mark. There is John, the son of uh, Annas. And John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, who was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the wild man who wore camel's hair and ate locusts and drank honey. He was the crazy guy. But tonight, we're not talking about those four. We're talking about John the Apostle. John the Apostle was born around A.D. 6 uh, in Galilee. He was about 10 years younger than Jesus was. And so when Jesus called him to follow him, most likely John was around 20 years old. Jesus would have been thirty. And he was a little bit younger than John the Baptist. He would, John the Baptist was about six months younger than Jesus, or older than Jesus, I should say. And John the Apostle, as we'll call him right now, John the Apostle uh, was born about ten years after both John the Baptist and Jesus. He lived in the same area, though, that Jesus was raised in and and. Uh, was a part of, and we don't have any indication that they knew each other prior to this, but there could be good cause that they, they probably might have ran across each other at times. And Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, we're familiar with the fishing of the Sea of Galilee. and many stories in Scripture, if you look, they, they kind of move around the Sea of Galilee. But it was, Galilee was this place that was rich in agriculture and rich in fishing. And it had two kind of tiers to it. There was the upper and the lower part of Galilee, the upper being a mountain and the lower being where the sea or the lake was. And you can learn a lot about people, and I'm going to make this statement, and you can say amen if you want, but I, I know it's true in my life. You can learn a lot about people by understanding their backstory, and in particular, you can understand a lot about people by understanding who their family is. Uh, there's so much, there's so much, my brain just went zzz. Um, but I, I have a filter, and so that's what was <laughs> happening there. But aren't we thankful we're not held captive to our genealogy? Yeah. Amen. That's what I'll say. That's what the filter will say. Aren't you thankful you're not held captive to, to your genealogy? Amen. All right. Keep it going. All right, here we go. But we know that our families, in particular our parents, our siblings, play a role in how we respond to life and how we developed even our personality. And so we're introduced to our character, John, at the beginning of Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's calling people to follow him. And Jesus makes his way along the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees a couple individuals who are casting their net in the water. And he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He was talking to Andrew and Peter. They were Casting their nets. Everyone say casting their nets. All right? So that's a, a minor detail, but I think it's just an important detail, significant detail. Because the Scripture tells us that Jesus said to them in Mark one seventeen, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they readily agreed, and immediately it says they left their nets And followed him. They left their nets and followed him. They had nets. They were throwing into the sea and pulling back. And he says, follow me. And it says they left their nets where they were and started following Jesus. And so, as Jesus continues to walk on this shoreline, he sees a couple other people. Now Mark chapter 1 verse 19 tells us when he had gone a little farther from there, meaning his invitation to Peter and Andrew where they were casting their nets, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. So if you're mending your nets, in my opinion as a fisherman, that's a better sign than if you were just casting your net. Mending meant they were catching something. When you're having to replace your hook and your your the bait on your line, that's, that's a good sign. That means you're catching something. And so James and John, his brother, were in their boat mending their nets. And so Mark one verse 20 says, and immediately he, Jesus, called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Now this is compelling to me because they're not just leaving nets behind. They're leaving a boat, an occupation so to speak. They're leaving this behind a boat and they're leaving their father behind. And to me, it speaks to the depth of the decision that they're making. Now, let's consider John's father. He is what we are known, or he's called Zebedee. And what we can understand about him, just based on this quick interaction in Scripture, is that he was a hard worker. And he was involved in his son's lives and their occupation. He was involved in what they were doing. This is the the picture that was taken of Jesus uh, calling them. So you can find that on on I think John's Instagram account. but anyway, so it's it's an interaction where you see john 's father as someone who is Working, someone who loves his family. He loves his children. He's brought them into the business with him. And it also helps us understand this one little scripture tells us that John's father, Zebedee, is wealthy. He has a substance to his life, so much so that he had hired servants, he had people who were working. For him, and that speaks to the level of his occupation and the level in which James and John's lives were lived. Now, let's talk about John's mother. As we explore in the Gospels, we can find a picture of John's mother. One meaningful picture we find is her at the cross. We are told that she was watching as Jesus was being crucified, as he was being led. And uh, you can find this in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less. So there's two James there, of Joseph and Salome who also followed Jesus and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, Matthew 27 gives us a a different context to it and speaks to it in this way. As many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. All right, so here we get the picture that John's mother was very active in her faith. She would have been a woman of faith, a woman who had turned her heart to Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're, we're making an assumption there that she was probably a person of faith even in their younger years. And so we see this, and there is even some scriptures that allude to the fact that she possibly even contributed to Jesus' ministry financially, but that is not as clear in scripture. Then you get to John's brother, James, and so let's consider him for a moment. John was most likely the younger brother. The scripture tells us and puts the order of their names as James and John Uh, mostly, almost in every scenario. And it seems that James and John were very close to one another. Uh, They are mentioned together often. We see them in the boat fishing together, working with their father together. So no doubt they were very, very close. And I think this is meaningful. They're often mentioned as well in the context of Jesus' ministry as being together with Jesus in ministry. So in the healings and the miracles, there were times where Jesus would invite Peter, James, and John to come to a specific area, one being when Simon Peter's mother-in-law was healed James and John were invited into that environment. They were together. It would be James and John who were invited into Jairus's house when Jairus's daughter was sick and she was healed. It was Peter, James, and John who were invited into that moment. It was James and John along with Peter who were invited into the mount to see Jesus transfigured and it was a special occasion. But James and John seemed to be always linked together. And so, we have a little context to their upbringing. And now, if we can consider then, if we look at that, and I don't want to impose too much into the text or too much about his personality and John's personality, but I, I want us to consider the potential for his personality and I think we have to use caution anytime we're applying this kind of reasoning to Scripture because uh, uh, we don't want to create something that's not there. But I think if you understand some of the th- these things, it can add value and richness to your understanding. But Mark gives us an overview of the disciples. And in this overview, we see something very amazing. In the gospel of Mark, he begins to, he, he gives us the context of the disciples being called, and then he gives us this snapshot. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and he went up to the mountain and called to Jesus those he, wanted, uh, he himself wanted, and they came to Jesus. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to heal and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So he's saying, I changed his name to Peter. Then he said, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonner, And that is the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. Now then he lists out the rest of the disciples and the rest of that next two passages. But these brothers, now he called Peter, he called Simon Peter because of a revelation. And John is reflecting on that in his writing. But he's also saying that Jesus gave them a nickname. Anybody have a nickname in school? You get that nickname for a reason. That doesn't just happen. Now, it may surprise you that at times in my life, I was called Shorty. I don't get it. I don't get it. Doesn't make sense to me. But you get nicknames because of certain things that are a part of you or that identify your personality in some way. And so, many scholars believe that this identification of sons of thunder is not just an identification of a spiritual trait, but speaks to something about their personality, that it speaks to the idea that their personality might have been aggressive. Certainly, the sons of thunder doesn't give you the idea of somebody who's calm and just loving life. It seems to speak of something that's aggressive, and I would add cautiously, somewhat maybe competitive. Now, we get this glimpse in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he knows where he's headed. He sent messengers before his face. As they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him to come. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? We would be glad, Lord, on your behalf, of course, on your behalf, to absolutely destroy these people. Again, sons of thunder. But he turned, Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went to another village. But it gives you a quick glimpse into their willingness to take matters into their own hands. And in some way, that idea of, if they're not with us, they're against us, and they should be destroyed. It's this competitive idea. And we find a very enlightening story in Matthew about James and John and now we get a little backstory about their mother. Matthew chapter 20 and 20 it says the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus with her sons. She kneels down and asks something from him. She wants to ask something. He said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit One on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. So maybe James and John get it honestly. Where, if you just take the context that it's always Peter, James, and John. Now you get that there's 12, but you only have two hands. So mama is saying, I could care less about all these other people. Certainly I could care less about Peter. Jesus, do you think my two sons could be in the prominent positions? And it's this idea of kingship, it's prestige and power, and I think we we get it. We want the best for our kids. But here's what I think back to, and I just... Again, I may be adding to scripture and I apologize. But I cannot imagine that she was so bold to say this to Jesus in this moment, to have them sit on his right hand and his left. And this being the first time in her life she ever tried to do this with her kids. I assume, right or wrong, that when they were growing up, she might have had a reputation. She was the mom talking to the coaches. She was the mom talking to the drama director. She was the one saying, hey, I don't know about that batting order position. Have you seen my son's play? We see this competitive nature. Now, there's another context of this. Uh, Another passage that refers to this same story, it's in Mark. And in that passage, it seems to indicate that the sons were right on board with it. They too wanted to be the greatest. And when Jesus kind of talks to them about what that's going to be, that you have to drink the cup, Jesus called them to himself. And he says, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise who, who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." Now, when I read this, I think of the context of their calling. Remember, they're in a boat with their father, but they're not alone with their father. They're there with hired servants. And Jesus, I believe, is taking them back to their calling and saying, Do you remember? Do you remember that picture of the hired servants? That those who are greatest in the kingdom are those who serve. Then we get another picture, and this is my final picture of John's competitiveness, possibly. That's found in John chapter 20, which is the account that John wrote. Some of you know where this is going. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone was taken away from the tomb. Now what you got to understand is John is writing this. And John is about 90, 95 years old. He's writing this. He's remembering back under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and we going to the tomb, but this was not a casual walk. So, they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Is that important? It's like a postscript. Like they ran to the tomb together. Like that's how you should say it. But, but the other disciple, which he's not naming himself, and we'll, we'll end with that. But he's not naming himself. The other disciple, he actually got there first. <laughs> he's faster than Peter. And he's stooping down, looking in, Peter, or John, looking in. He's talking about himself. Looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him Just reminding you He's, he's back behind me <laughs> And went into the tomb He saw the linen clothes lying there And the handkerchief that had been around his head Not lying with the linen clothes But folded together in a place by itself Then the other disciple, John Who, who happened to come to the tomb first <laughs> Went in also and he saw, and believed. <laughs> Some of you are identifying with that so much for so many reasons. <laughs> for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away their uh, way again to their own home. John, congratulations, you won first place. <laughs> it's almost like we see this desire to win competitive nature to win. So it's in this context that we conclude with one of John's greatest contributions, and that is the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the author is affirmed almost unanimously by biblical scholars to be the Apostle John, even though he never names himself as the writer. It's almost unanimous, everybody agrees to this, that he is the writer. However, John never uses his own name. Over and over, he refers to himself in the third person, and he says the other disciple, the disciple. Or, five times, as the disciple who Jesus loved. It was at the Last Supper where he says in John 13, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. It was concerning Jesus' mother at the cross when Jesus, in John 19, 26, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. He's talking about himself. John took Jesus' mother. We read it in John chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And Then finally we see John using this term in John chapter 21 verse 4 when the morning had now come, Jesus who had died, was buried, rose again, starts to appear to the disciples. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? They answered to him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw in it because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord now when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging, dragging the net with fish. And this time, Peter beats John in the race. And in verse 19, skip down for sake of time, this he, Jesus, spoke signifying by what death, he he has a conversation with Peter where he tells him, and he says, uh, basically, I, I want you to be a part of my kingdom again. And he was talking to him about what had happened, and when he, Jesus, had spoken this, he said to him, Peter, follow me. And in this context, we see the restoration of Peter. But we see this context concluded in John chapter 21 verse 20 this idea of the disciple whom Jesus loved Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following who had also who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said lord who is the one who betrays you so peter's having this conversation with Jesus and he turns around and he sees John not in there yet and he's asking Jesus about what's going to happen to him because Jesus had just given Peter the context that he was going to have to die for the gospel. And he looks around and he says, Lord, what about the one who, when we were at the Last Supper and who was the one who asked you, who is the one who betrays you? Peter identifies John as the one who asked the question at the Last Supper. And Peter, seeing him, Peter looking at John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? I don't want to take time. I'll skip ahead here. But there's a context. When you look at the Last Supper, you see Peter in his own fear sitting there. John was closest to Jesus. Peter was sitting close. And Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter turns to John and says, hey, ask Jesus who it is. (laughs) Then John, the one leaning on his breast, ask him, who betrays you? That's the context of that story. And John is revisiting that moment. And then we read in John chapter 21, 21, Peter seeing John, we said that, but Lord, what about this man? Peter's asking. And then verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, Jesus told Peter, don't worry about John. I'll handle John. And so when you consider the backstory of the Apostle John, and you see his conversion, you see his calling, you see his personality and his drive to win, you could almost read into the gospel that he was trying to position himself as the favorite of Jesus. And certainly, that would not seem far a far stretch, just looking at the wording. However, I do not believe that is what John is trying to say or insinuate. In fact, I believe he has another message. In John's gospel account, he is emphatic to make sure we know that Jesus loves everyone. It was to Martha and Mary and Lazarus in John chapter eleven five. he said, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he wasn't taking the love exclusively to him. It was his disciples. He records the words uh, that say, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It was John who would say this, as the Father loved me, I, Jesus, he's recording the words of Jesus who said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you, abide in my love. And then Jesus also said in John's account, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. In other words, John is not trying to claim himself claim for himself the love of Jesus while excluding that opportunity for others. So there must be something else that John is trying to say and wanting us to know. And here's what I believe it is. John had latched on to a powerful realization at the end of his life and one that we would do well to understand and live by. And that is the greatest identity that I could have in this world is to know that God loves me. John was saying, I could label myself as a lot of things. I could try and make myself look like a lot of things in the gospel. I could say the apostle John. I could say the son of thunder John. I could say first place John. But all I care about identifying myself as is a disciple loved by Jesus. And I think that's a revelation that you and I would do well to get. Of all the things that could be said of you and I, all the labels and the, the uh, prefixes that could be put on our names and the things that we can put after our names, all the things we can be labeled if we could be labeled a disciple who is loved by Jesus Christ. Now that's an awesome thing to be known as because I know this, I can't make it without Jesus I can't do life without Jesus. I love that song. Take this whole world, but give me Jesus. So tonight I want you to take just a few minutes with the person next to you. We're back to app time. Now I want you to talk about how you might identify with the bad and the good of John's backstory, his personality, his calling, and his life. How do you identify with the story and the character of John? the apostle. Just take a couple minutes to talk to the person next to you. All right. Well, I hope you had a chance to dialogue with somebody next to you and see how John's life might mirror some things in your life. I invite you to stand with me tonight. First Corinthians chapter five, fourteen says, For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What a powerful revelation and understanding it is to know that the love of God compels us. And that's what I think John saw at the end of his life See, John would write the Gospel of John. He would write the letters that are known as the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He would write the book of Revelation as we know it, which was the revelation of Jesus Christ. But by the time John would write this Gospel of John, around 90 A.D. or so, Peter would have been martyred. James, his brother, in Acts chapter 12, was already martyred. In Acts 12, verse 1, Now about this time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's not something that I think any of us would take lightly if somebody we loved, somebody we cared about. And we see that over in Scripture. When people were martyred, It wasn't a thing to cheer about. It wasn't something that they were like, just yay, act like it didn't happen. They grieved when people died. And no doubt John grieved the loss of his mother, or his brother, I should say. But as he writes this Gospel of John, it's like he sees the love of God in his life. And I don't think he writes it as some competitive journal. But I think that he writes it to say, I, like anybody else, am just somebody else who Jesus loved. And so in they say in 101 A.D. or so in Ephesus near Turkey, John died. But John wasn't the disciple who Jesus loved because he lived a long debt, a long life. But I believe he was the disciple who Jesus loved because He allowed the love of God to compel him to live his life a certain way. And I conclude with Romans chapter 8 before we pray in closing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I encourage you to live as the disciple that Jesus loved. I want to pray for you. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the example of John, this great apostle, God who lived his life for you, God who lived his life in dedication to you, that we know he wasn't perfect, he didn't get everything right, and maybe there were things about his life that maybe were wrong and maybe were a little bit much. But, Lord, you never stopped showing grace, you never stopped showing mercy, and, God, you were able to love him to the end. I pray for our congregation tonight. I pray for those who are here tonight who maybe don't feel worthy of your love. They don't feel like they deserve it. Lord, when they look at the history of their life, they don't see why they would deserve your love. They don't feel like they could wear the label of the disciple whom Jesus loved. But I pray tonight that we would be willing, Lord, to accept your love for us, that nothing would separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Would you give them praise tonight for his kindness, and love to you. Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory in Jesus' name.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com